So you guys, let's pray. And we're going to dig into chapter 27, starting in verse 51, is where we left off last week. So let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I praise you, Lord, for worship. God, it is such a blessing to come together as a group, Lord, and and add our off-key singing together, Lord, with the beautiful, uh, you know, harmonious singing that's happening on the stage. Uh, God, not that I speak for everybody, but I definitely speak for me, Lord, with the off-key singing. And God, I'm thankful, Lord, that we just get to just give you praise, give you worship, Lord, to, to yell at the top of our lungs, Lord, just how good you are, Lord. Come on, my soul. Right? Lord, we, we are so thankful, Lord, that we get the privilege of singing praise to you. God, I'm thankful, Lord, that we get the privilege of digging into your word. Lord, that we can sit here together as a group, Lord, that people can join us online, Father, without fear, without worrying about it, that the cops are going to come in and, and take them out and put a bullet in their head. God, we don't have to worry about any of that. Lord, we can come to your word freely here, and I, I pray, God, help us never to take that for granted. God, help us, Father God, to engage your word and to ask, we ask, Holy Spirit, Lord, would you change us? Would you, would you make a move in our hearts? Teach us what it looks like to submit to you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So you guys, last week, if you remember, we left Jesus literally at the moment where he yielded up his spirit, right? He told everyone, he told the world, it is finished, right? To tell us die. And so today we're going to be looking at what happened right after that moment. And then we're going to be looking at like Jesus being buried in the tomb. And we're going to look at some interactions that happened in that process and how beautiful and amazing even that time was. And just, man, you guys, there's so much there. And then we're going to look at this. What was happening to Jesus while he was in the grave? Do you guys ever think about that? So there's some clues that we have in the Bible, and we're going to look at them. And so I want to just encourage you guys. There's a lot here to dig through. And, uh, you know, some of this is, is really deep stuff. And I mean that sincerely. It's stuff that, like, um, is just whatever. And that's okay. There's one key point I want you guys to hear. Are you ready? We're going to leave him today in the grave, but that's not where he stayed. That's the key. If you hear nothing else, hear that. He died and he rose again. Amen? Amen. So, verse 51. Let's start reading. It says this. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. All right, that's it. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. <laughs> you guys, let's, let's look at this. Let's walk through this. What happened the second he said to Telestai? It says the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Why is that an important point? Well, the reality is, if it came from the top to the bottom, who did it? God. This veil, you guys, was thick. It was a thick veil. This was not like the curtains in your house, right? I don't know about y'all. My mom loved her little lacy curtains. She's blind, which always made me laugh. And I always, well, yeah, it just makes me laugh because it's funny. But I love her. But, but the thing is, why did she want lacy curtains? Because she could feel them. 
Kind of makes sense, right? So she wanted lacy curtains. She'd be like, aren't they pretty? Aren't they beautiful? We're like, yeah, mom. <laughs> we don't, I don't know. I'm a guy. I don't know what that, <laughs> sure. But this, that's not what this was, you guys. This isn't something that I could have walked over and went and tore it. And if I would have torn it, this was a very, very tall veil, right? This isn't something that I was just going to walk in and tear apart. This isn't something that any human was going to tear apart, and definitely not from the top to the bottom. So this is obviously God. How do we know that that happened? Have you guys ever come across things in Scripture, and you're like, how did Matthew know that? Well, guys, can I just encourage you? Don't be afraid to ask the Bible questions, because the Bible has answers for you. Sometimes the answer, I'm just giving you a heads up, is this. You don't need to know that right now. Right? You guys, the truth is, though, in Acts 6, 7, we're not going to turn there, but I'm just going to read it to you. We, we get a clue, I think, as to how Matthew and how the disciples knew this. Acts chapter 6, verse 7 says, Then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And listen to this part. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Why do you think that might be? Could it possibly be because they were standing in there and they saw a curtain tear from the bottom or the top to the bottom? Could it be? It's an interesting thought. Definitely, for sure, they would have been like, yo, I don't know if y'all know this, but that was crazy. <laughs> right? So, like, do you get it? It's not that complicated to figure out how the disciples would have known this fact, even though they weren't standing in there at that moment. And so, there we go. That gives us some proof to that. But these priests, you guys... Here they were, they're coming to the Lord, and we're going to look at some more people that uh, really showed, their, showed themselves and, and, and came to the Lord today, and it's exciting, exciting stuff. What else happened? It says the earth quaked and the rocks were split. You guys, when Jesus died, the earth quaked and the rocks split. This was an epic moment in the sight of everyone. Do you guys understand that? Listen, I've lost my grandpa. I've lost my uncle. I've lost my dad. I've lost some people you guys probably have too. Not once. With these people that I love dearly when they died, did the earthquake and rocks split. Nothing got torn, right? None of that happened. This has never happened in history and it never will happen again. Now, when will the earthquake and the rocks split again? When Jesus touches down at the second coming. That's when that's going to happen again. So do you notice that Jesus is the common denominator here? So the fact is, you guys, this was an epic moment. And I need us to hear this. The Jews, they saw the curtain tear from, from top to bottom. They heard about this. They were like, whoa, they felt the earthquake. They had all this, but I need us to understand something. Do you understand this? The Gentiles heard, or I'm sorry, felt, the Romans felt the earthquake under their feet as Jesus died. He said to Telestai, it is finished and then they're like, what is going on? They had to know something epic here is happening. Something is crazy right now. And I need us to remember back. What did we read last week? They had spent three hours in pitch dark. They're already like, this is weird. This is already a weird time. You guys, I need us to get our heads around this because the reality is, is that everyone has to look and say, okay, Jesus, you are something different. And they had to do that then. And can I say this? The rest of the world has continued to do that from that day forward. We still do. We still do. The world can say anything they want about Jesus. But one thing they cannot say is that he is somebody that is, 
that is just easy and normal and, and can easily be dealt with. Because the fact is, is he's known worldwide. Listen, nobody knows Jeremy Smiley worldwide. Anybody here known worldwide? Right? No. No. Nobody's known worldwide. He is. He's somebody we have to deal with. Spurgeon had this to say about this idea of the rocks splitting. It just hit me. You guys know, man, I love my Spurgeon quotes. So here's a Spurgeon quote. It says this. It says, men's hearts did not respond to the agonizing cries of the dying redeemer, but the rocks responded. The rocks were rent, and I put in there for you guys, torn. They were torn. He did not die for rocks, yet rocks were more tender than the hearts of men for whom he shed his blood. Yeah, exactly. Guys, I need us to let that sink in for a second. That's where the world is. The rocks broke. The rocks cried out. They broke. The earth was like seismic activity at the death of the Messiah. It hurt. It shook them. And yet the hearts of these men were like indifferent. Didn't care. The hearts of the chief priests and many of the Jews were just to send him on his way, to send him to his death. They didn't want to hear it, you guys. The hearts of many today would prefer to just do their own thing than to deal with the fact that they're not God and there is a God. And he made a way through this guy named Jesus. The last thing that we see here, don't think I'm skipping this part. It's a very interesting thing. We only see this in Matthew, you guys. This piece of information is nowhere else in any of the other gospels. And that is this, that when Jesus, and I want you to notice this, and if you underlining your Bible, I would underline this part. It says in verse 52, the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves when? After his resurrection. They came out after his resurrection. So this is something that happened after he was resurrected. This wasn't something that happened right away. Why did Matthew put this here? Well, Matthew is just laying out all the weird and supernatural things that happened in this moment, in this moment of his death. They, he was like, man, I'm just gonna tag this one on too because that also happened. Like, there's that, right? And you guys, I gotta say something. This is the first and only zombie apocalypse I don't know about y'all. I really like zombies. I think there's a lot of theological value in zombies because I kind of look at my old man as my zombie. It's like, I want your brains. <laughs> they just want to gnaw on your flesh, right? And you got to put them down, man. Right? You put them down with the sword of the spirit, right? We know with zombies, you got to stab them in the brains. Get to it, man. Read the word. Let the old man die. So the truth is, you guys, this is the first and only zombie apocalypse except... Two things. Number one, they weren't zombies. They were not zombies. They were human beings. We're going to look at more of that as we go along, what exactly that was and how the Greek kind of gives us insight into what all this means. And the second thing is, you guys, for sure, what makes them not zombies, they were not hungry for human flesh. So this is not the first and only zombie apocalypse. This is not the first and only zombie apocalypse. It's not. But what is it? Well, let's put a pin in it and keep reading. And we're going to come back to this, I promise. But I, I need us to remember that as we're thinking about this, yes, the, the veil was torn 
from the top to the bottom. God tore the veil. That God opened the way. There was no more need for the high priest to go in. Listen, if you're here and you're maybe a Catholic or you're a recovering Catholic and you're like, man, do I got to go to confession and what does all that look like? Listen, there's nothing wrong with that. I gotta, I'm just telling you, man, God, God has direct traffic. He can, he can actually have a conversation with you. That was the veil being torn. But there are times whenever you go, people come to me and they confess things. And I'm like, look, I'm not your confessor, but I'll hear what you have to say and we can pray together about it. Does that make sense? Yeah. We can do that with anybody. So I, I need just to hear this. I'm not here judging and saying like, it's wrong. Is there another way? Absolutely. When that veil tore, you have free access. Have a conversation with God. Please, I encourage you. But the truth is, Matthew added this last little bit as one of those supernatural, amazing things that happened in the process of Jesus dying and rising again. And this was all very abnormal, very specific to Jesus. And like I said before, you guys, that's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. Everything that we see in scripture, everything that we understand now is all about Jesus. Do you understand that? You are never going to be good enough to get yourself to heaven. Jesus did it. You're never going to like figure it out and walk in a way and say the right words that are going to make you sound just Christian enough that everyone around you is going to be like, oh man, look at that guy. No, listen, it's about Jesus. You can be as rough around the edges as you want. God's going to fix that through time. He's doing it on me, y'all. I'm living proof, right? But the reality is, is that all I have is Jesus. All we all have is Jesus. Amen? Amen. Verse 54 says this. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake, or felt it, I should say, right? And the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joses, and the mother of Zebedee's son. You guys, the centurion that was over the group of guys that were up there, the guys that had nailed Jesus to the cross, the ones that had put the nails in, the ones that had lifted him up and hoisted him up and, and got him up onto where he was going to be when he, when he died, you know, they're all there. And this guy makes a statement when he took in everything that he saw and felt. And I need us to remember, it had been dark for three hours. Jesus dies and says, it is finished. The earthquake, the rocks split, all this stuff happened. And he says this, truly this was the son of God. And I got to say one thing about this guy. He was so close, so close. I'm like, you're almost there, but not quite. If you're the son of the eternal God, well, that makes you eternal. You don't cease to be the son of God. Well, let's take it one step deeper, you guys. Jesus said in John 10, 30, Jesus said that I and my father are one, right? I and my father are one. In John 14, 9, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father, right? We have this idea that Jesus just isn't the son of God. He is God. He's God in flesh, right? I think sometimes God was just being gracious to us and giving us the designation that Jesus is the son and he's the father, right? Like, I don't get it all, right? And I don't, this is one of those things in the Bible that I think at the end of the day, you're gonna be like, I don't get it completely. We can't. We're talking about an eternal being here. Three and one. 
When you can explain that clearly, then come to me because I can't. Not completely, but I trust it. I know it, right? I believe it. So this centurion was wrong in saying that he was the son of God. But the reality is, is he was very close to the true realization of what he had just witnessed, you guys. And I pray that he didn't stay there. My prayer is that God moved him further along. That somebody came alongside him and was like, he's not, he wasn't just the son of God. He is the son of God. Like he, he's here, right? Like, wouldn't it have been cool if this, I mean, I have no idea, guys. I don't know. I just, I'm excited to get to heaven and figure out how all of it worked out. I'm ex- I, I would be awesome to go there and be like, he'll be like, dude, I was so close, but man, I was totally still missing it. But then somebody explained it to me and here I am. And I'd be like, sweet. Good to meet you, dude. Right? Like, it's cool. It's cool to know, you guys, that God moves us along. It's cool to realize that here he is, feeling this stuff, sensing this stuff, looking at Jesus and saying, that guy is different. And even though he was a little off, you guys, do you realize that God can still move that needle? That's the important part. Being completely closed off to who Jesus is is the scariest place any human being could ever be. Being open to it and saying, like, I don't know who he is, but I want to. I promise you, he's going to meet you. I believe that. He's sovereign. That means he's got it all well in hand, right? So last thing I want to look at in this little section is this, the faithfulness of these women that follow Jesus, you guys. This is beautiful on multiple levels. You see that there in verse 55, he says that the women there followed him from Galilee, ministering to him, were looking on from afar. And then it gives us some of the people that were there, right? Mary Mags tells us Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. This is the mother of Jesus, right? This is just his, his other uh, brothers, his younger brothers. And then it says the mother of Zebedee's son, sons. Who was that? James and John, the disciples, right? So these three ladies were there. And I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but I think this is beautiful on multiple levels, you guys. And I got to tell you why. Can we just stop for a second and remember and acknowledge all the things that went down prior to this? The disciples, all 11 of them at that moment, told Jesus, I'm your ride or die. I'm with you to the end, right? Mainly through Peter, because Peter's got the biggest mouth. I very much relate to Peter, right? And so here's Peter, and he's like, I'm with you to the end, Jesus. If, if, you, if you die, I'm dying with you. It's all good. And then Jesus is like, man, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And he's like, no, that's not true, right? So proud, such big words. And then remember, it said that all the other disciples were kind of behind Peter, like, yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm with you, right? Peter's like, dude, don't steal the spotlight. It's me. I said it first. No, he didn't say that. You guys, that's what the disciples were acting like though, right? What happened? What happened? Peter sliced off a guy's ear and got yelled at by Jesus because Jesus was putting the guy's ear, Malthus's ear back on him. was like, hey, put your sword away. If I want 72,000 angels down here to take care of this, I can do that in a heartbeat, but I'm, I'm not because this is how it's supposed to go. So put your sword away, right? They all scattered. When trouble came, they all scattered. Now, let's contrast that with these ladies. These women, nowhere in scripture do we read that they talk such big words. Nowhere. 
But where were they now? Standing there ministering to Jesus. Even if it's from afar, I need you guys to understand something. Listen, they're following the cultural norms. They were not going to be in the front row because that's just not the way women did it then. But do you understand the strength of character that was noticeably there in them that wasn't, where were the disciples? Who knows? Running away. Scared, hiding. Now, we do know through scripture that John was there, right? Little John. Little John was the youngest of all disciples. It actually makes sense if you think about the fact that he lived the longest and he wrote the, the book of Revelation and all these things. I mean, but he, he grew to be an old man. But the reality is, is at this point, most people believe he's probably a 16, 17-year-old kid. Guess where he ran, you guys? Back to his mommy. Where was his mommy? Standing there with Jesus. I'm not acting like John wasn't there on his own accord. I have no idea. I'm just saying he went back to his mama. As most 16-year-olds would. So, I mean, let's get our head around this. These women were the ones that were showing bravery and character right now. These women were the ones that didn't have to say words. They acted it out. They showed a strength that was not visible in the disciples at this moment, you guys. Can we just take a moment and take that in, you guys? What a testimony. What a testimony of these ladies showing humble strength. Being the strength, honestly, that, that honestly, I think Jesus needed. And that, did, did Jesus need anything? No, he's God. But you get my point? If you're going to do anything, if you've ever gotten to sit beside the bed of somebody that's passing away, you don't have to say anything. A lot of times you can't because they're not awake. But you're there. There's a strength in that. Do you understand what I'm getting at? You can talk all you want, you guys. But I'll tell you what, it's way louder to act out your character by being there than big and boastful words that are spoke most often by brash men. Guys, don't get beating yourself up and being like, I can't believe pastor's saying that because I'm a man too. And I say big and boastful words sometimes as well. And ladies can do that too, so don't get me wrong there. But I just I gotta say, like in this situation, it's pretty obvious who actually followed through and who didn't. I think all of us can learn something here. Let's be people of our word. But more importantly, let's be people that recognize meekness, you guys, I think is much more important in this world than bravado. A horse is meek. You guys know what meekness means? Power under control. A horse submits to you when you tug on the reins and you tell it where to go and it'll go right or left and you can tell it what to do and it listens. But the reality is, is if you get off that horse, he has every bit of power to stomp you into glue. He's way more powerful than any human, that horse, right? But he chooses not to walk that out and be like, I'm gonna stomp you into the ground, boy, right? He's... That's meek, you guys. Meekness is needed in this world much more than bravado. Humility to me will always outshine pride and self-confidence. Quiet and unspoken action that sticks close to another person will always speak louder than big words that fall flat when it comes to the follow-up. I think we need to hear that as Americans. I need to hear that. I think we need to hear that, you guys. I think we need to hear that on our Facebook feeds. I think we need to hear that in the way we interact one with another. I'm with you, bro. I'm with you. All right, man, cool. Can you come over and help me out? 
Ah, well, you know. How about you just show up? A lot of people, when I broke my back and I was laid up for a long time, a lot of people said a lot of things, and I love them all, and I know they meant it. I I need you to hear me. I'm not against them. And then things came up, and they weren't able to come. But do you know who blessed me the most? I think I've told this story to you guys before. A guy that came to our church, we were literally the polar opposite. He would come in in a three-piece suit. I would come in without shoes and tore up shorts, right? Like I was just whatever. <laughs> the, the pastor had to come to me and be like, can you, can you just like wear flip-flops or something? I'm like, okay. He's the one that came over to my house when my grass was this tall because I couldn't mow it because I was literally not able to move in a back brace. He's the one that came over and said, where's your lawnmower? He didn't ask. He didn't tell me he was going to come over and then didn't. He just showed up and knocked on my door, right? And then I had to walk out the pride thing because I was like, ah, I get it. And he's like, how are you going to get it, man? Come on. And he's like, don't make me pull rank. He outranked me in the military. And I'm like, okay, sir. And he mowed my lawn for me. And it was huge. And it was such a blessing. And what he doesn't know is that I was in my bedroom crying because I needed someone to do that. But I was too proud to ask. That's, that's what I'm getting at. That's what these women did. They're there. They're like, I'm, we're here with you. We're here in, in whatever way we can be. Verse 57. It says, now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. So here they are again, these ladies. But what we see here, you guys, is this wealthy man named Joseph who was from Arimathea. And Arimathea, you guys, is like an area that's kind of northwest of Jerusalem is where that area is at or was. But the reality is here, we're told in John 19, 8, here in Matthew, he says he was the disciple of Jesus. That was true. In, Matthew, in John 19, 8, we're told that he was a secret disciple of Jesus. Why? Because he was afraid of the Jews. He was afraid of the Jews. But guess what? This was his coming out party. This was his way of being like, I don't care anymore. I don't care what you think. I don't care what you have to say. I care more about Jesus than I care about anything. I need us to understand the the wealth of this guy. We're told in the Gospel of Luke and in the Gospel of John that he was a counselor. We're told in the Talmud, you guys, that he was one of the 14 great counselors that existed in all of the time of Jerusalem. In all of the time of Israel, he was one of the 14 great counselors. So this guy was well-respected, and he was extremely wealthy. We're talking like Elon Musk wealth. We're talking like so much money that we're like, I'm going to launch something into space for fun. And I don't care if it blows up, Rich. You know what I'm saying? And if it does blow up, that's cool because I'm building something else. That's kind of wealth he had, you guys. How do we know this? Well, first off, the Bible tells us, but second off, it's clear, you guys. He had a brand new tomb cut out of solid rock. Do you understand the work that took? There was no backhoes. You didn't go down to the tractor supply and rent a, rent a, a backhoe to clean it out. No, this was done by hand. People, you're hiring people to carve out rock and build this thing for you to be laid in. Where is he from? Arimathea. Where do you think it should be? His, his tomb? 
It should be in Arimathea. Doesn't it make sense? Why do you think he wanted to be here? Because we're told in the Gospel of John, you guys, that he sought God. He was waiting for the Messiah. He knew the scripture, you guys, I would say in some ways better than those scribes and Pharisees and chief priests that memorized all of the scripture. And he knew that guess what we're told in the prophets, that the Messiah is going to step down right here. And so what did he say? I want to be right there next to it. So when he comes back, I'm getting up, right? He's like, I want to be first in line and be like, hey, man. So he built his tomb right there. And it said that no one had been laid there. No one. You guys, we need to understand something. He went to Pilate and he asked for the body. The fact is, you guys, normally in Roman times, we know this through history, the bodies were left up there to just rot. A lot of times they would just get eaten by jackals from the feet up and then the birds would pick out their eyes and and eat them from the top down. And so they were just sitting there rotting, stinking, Why? Well, I'll tell you what, if you're Rome, that's a great reminder to everybody else that it's like, well, if you don't want to be up there, don't do anything wrong. Isn't it? That was the norm. Now, it is known that Rome would would give bodies up here and there if you had enough money. If there was enough money involved, right? If you would grease the right palm, people could get a body off the cross. Friends, family, people that had enough money, right? But the truth is, you guys, and I need us to understand this, in the Greek that it says here, it says this, that Pilate gave the body. Pilate gave it. There was no money involved. He's just like, you want the body, you got it, yours. Now, remember, we've talked all about Pilate. Pilate had no problem putting people to death. Pilate was not a good man. But Pilate, again, he, just like everybody else, said that guy is different. Something is different about that guy. We know that he had washed his hands thinking that meant something. I'm good. I'm good, God. I'm good. I'm killing your son, but I'm good. No, you're not good. None of us are good. None of us are good. We all need Jesus, right? You can't wash your hands clean and think you're good. You need Jesus. But the fact is, you guys, is that we see here, again, Pilate acting out of character because of this guy, Jesus, and he gave Joseph the body. And we're told, you guys, in John's gospel, flip over with me to John chapter 19, I want to take a moment to read this because there's another guy. So we don't really know Joseph of Arimathea. We know from this point right here, but there's another guy mentioned in the Gospel of John that you guys already should know. You guys know a guy named Nicodemus? Nicodemus is the guy that went to Jesus and, and asked this a profound question of like, so what you're telling me, Jesus, is I got to go back in my mommy's womb and come back out? That's weird. And he's like, no, man, that's not what I'm saying right? Do you remember that? He came to him at night and he asked this question because he was like, what is this born again thing? Right? And Jesus makes it clear, like, you got to be born of the spirit. Well, we find out that Nicodemus was born again, you guys. We're going to get to know him in heaven. How do we know it? Right here. John chapter 19, verse 39. Verse 39 says this. Let's back up one verse. I'm just going to start from verse 38. It says this. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus, and now 39 says this, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen, with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. You guys, Nicodemus, 
we know this from history, was the third richest man in Israel. So you have Elon Musk wealth, and you have Bill Gates wealth. I don't know, I'm just picking a name. These two very wealthy old men that had a lot to lose by going and getting a body off of a cross and spending their money to bury it. They had a lot to lose. Do you know what we do know from history? Nicodemus, history tells us that his daughter's wedding was the most opulent wedding that had ever been seen in all of Israel up to that point. And I want us to process that thought because we've got Solomon, we've got David. I'm imagining their daughters probably had pretty amazing weddings, right? No, Nicodemus, his daughter's wedding, they said was the most opulent that had ever been seen in Israel up to that point. Something else history tells us is this, that within a 30-year period, she was scraping barley off the, off the threshing floor. Why? Because when Nicodemus did this very act, he lost his position. He ended up losing all his money. He lost everything to the point that we have historically annotated that his daughter ended up basically going and scraping together the barley that was on the threshing floor to go and make some bread. You guys, I need us to get our head around just what this means. How important this moment is that these two men, one that was following Jesus in secret, does that sound familiar? That's a lot of Americans. And one that was really on the fence and didn't really know what to do until he saw him die. We know from scripture that Nicodemus was one that said like, hey man, I don't know that this is right. We shouldn't be doing this nighttime thing. We shouldn't be doing all that. I think the gospel of John tells us that. But here's the deal, you guys. You know what? This thing was sealed. You weren't getting it back open without a bunch of guys to help you open it, right? That was this kind of thing. And then he comes in and he's got all this ointment. This stuff costs a lot of money. And they willingly chose to serve their savior Jesus, Jesus regardless of the cost. So Joseph and Nicodemus, if you guys want to flip back over with me to Matthew, keeping in mind that Nicodemus was there, they're the ones that took the body and wrapped it up in the clean linen cloth. They took 100 pounds of myrrh and aloe, rubbed it on his body. That was just the way it was. But here's the thing you got to remember. They had to do it quickly. Why? Because the Sabbath was coming. This had to be done quickly. They didn't get a chance to do everything they were supposed to do to bury him correctly, according to their customs, right? And so here they were, and they put him in a tomb. Why does it matter that the tomb had never been used? I got to say something, you guys. This is a brand new tomb, and it's an important point. Why? Because typically, you laid your family's bodies in this tomb, and you let them lay there for about two years. Within a two-year period, they would go back into the tomb, and when your flesh had all rotted away, and it was all gone, and all that was left was bones, they would gather all of your bones and put it into an ossuary, a box that had your name on the side, and then the ossuary box would be set in the corner. Why? Well, because now you have a bed that's freed up for somebody else. Do you get it? That was what they did. And so you could have a whole family, a whole lineage of a family buried in one tomb because they were eventually gathered up, scraped into a box basically, and put to the side. The fact that there was no other body in here, I need you to understand this, tells us that the one that came out was the one they put in. Right? It's not like, oh, I don't believe it was Jesus. I believe it was that box over there of Jimmy that somehow magically rose. No, there was only one body there. It was the only one that could come out. It's an important point to keep in mind. Also, the swoon theory. I want to touch on that for a second. You guys ever hear that? 
Some people will say, well, I don't think Jesus actually died. He just swooned. He just passed out basically for an extended period. Here's the deal, you guys. He was passed out for three days. That's kind of hard to believe, number one. Number two, he got lashed so many times that his body was giving out before he even got to the cross. Number three, he had blood coming out everywhere. And if you didn't think he had enough blood coming out, they stabbed his side and there was blood and water, which tells us his heart had exploded. So if you think you can survive all that, go ahead and give it a whirl. And then also, by the way, go and lay in in an airtight tomb for three days and see if you survive it. I don't think you will. He didn't swoon. He was dead. If he was not dead, I think he would have been complaining with this fact that he was getting stuff rubbed all over him at some point. Like, what are you doing to me, man? Bunch of freaks. Get off me. No, he was dead. The swoon theory is ridiculous. There, I said it. So who do we see again? We see Mary Mags and Jesus' mama. And they're watching what's happening from the opposite side. And I got it. Again, just think about it from their perspective for just a couple seconds, you guys. Jesus' mom sitting there watching her son lovingly being taken down on the, off the cross by people that had way more money than she ever did. Right? Like in a, in a place where she's just sitting there watching me like, my son, my son's dead. Thank you, God, for giving me giving him somebody that's willing to go and get him and put him somewhere. That he wouldn't just sit there and be eaten. That he wouldn't just sit there and rot. Thank you, God. Did she fully grasp who Jesus was? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. I don't think anybody got it until he rose again. Really? Well, actually, I take that back. We're going to look at someone that I do think got it, and it's going to surprise you who it is. But... How heartbreaking is this moment, you guys? Watching them place him in the tomb, being thankful for the kindness that's being shown to Jesus, and at the same time, the crushing feeling of finality when the stone got rolled into place and crunched down. It was like, boom, done. Verse 62. It says, on the next day, what's the next day, you guys? Sabbath. On the next day, on the Sabbath, which followed the day of preparation, that's talking about the preparing of the body that night, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate saying, sir, listen to this, you guys, sir, we remember while he was still alive, how the deceiver said, after three days, I will rise. Y'all get this? They understood what Jesus was getting at more than the disciples did at this moment in time. But what did they call him? The deceiver. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't like it, but I think they got it. After three days, I will rise. 64 says this, therefore command, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Oh, you guys. Pilate said to them, you have a guard? Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. You guys, Matthew points out some interesting behavior here from the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, right? Says that they went to Pilate. They went on the Sabbath. Do you understand that they literally threw all of the laws that they were 
telling everyone else to follow. They threw them all out the door. Why? Because Jesus had made them so angry and they were so afraid that maybe, just maybe, he was right. That maybe, just maybe, he was actually going to do what he said he was going to do. And so they were so afraid that they broke their own rules to go and talk to Pilate. They pretty much were there and they're like, oh my gosh, we do not want this to come true because then the, the thing that happened before will be worse because it'll actually be true. Now why, that's not what they're saying, but I need you to understand something. They had heard that Jesus was actually going to rise in three days. They had heard that. Either, remember the analogy that he brought up about the temple? You tear this down and in three days it'll be built again. And they actually used that to be the thing of accusation that they twisted his words and used that to even get him to Pilate to begin with, remember? But it sounds like possibly they got the analogy more than they let on. Maybe they understood what he meant more than they let on. Or it's also possible that they were referring to another time that Jesus had said something like this. But here's the thing. Either way, they didn't want it to happen. They didn't want it to happen. Think about it. I'm the Messiah. I'm the son of God. If you kill me, I'm going to rise in three days. They're like, that's not true. You're a liar. We're putting you to death. Oh man, you better not rise in three days. It seems ridiculous to think that they were worried about the disciples coming to grab them. Where were the disciples right now? Who knows? It's obvious the disciples were scared. It's obvious the disciples weren't going to be like, mount up regulators, we're taking it. No, that's not how this looked. They were scared. They thought everything was over. They thought that there was nothing left for them. They were like, what are we going to do? We know this, you guys, because what did Peter say later? I guess we go back to fishing. They're not there thinking, how are we going to finagle this and make this work out to our favor? How are we going to keep the charade going? That's not how they thought. I don't think Peter was that smart. Peter's like, I know fishing and I knew following Jesus. That's all I got. So I don't think they were worried as much about that personally as the chief priests and the Pharisees, I believe, were more worried about the fact that Jesus may just be who he said he was. And Pilate not only agreed to the request, you guys, but I need you to understand something. He gave them his own guard. Do you understand that? There's a difference here. Does the president just have random, you know, does he have Roscoe Pico train guarding him? right? No, he's got secret service. They're well-trained and they're coming from a background of training. They know what they're doing. And not only do they know what they're doing, they're willing to literally throw themselves in front of them. We saw that with Reagan, with Ronald Reagan, right? At least that's the one I remember. And so the fact is, you guys, these people are trained. This is Pilate's guard. I promise you, Pilate's guard is loyal. Pilate's guard is well-trained, probably the best trained. Why? Because the guy that's in charge wants the best trained around him. They're loyal. They're not going to be people that are going to be like, hey, man, give me enough money, and we're going to slide on the side and take care of this business. No, he gave them his guard to basically say, like, you go and make that thing secure, and here's my people. I promise you, nobody's getting in. And they also set a seal on the tomb. What does that mean? Think of it like a signet ring kind of thing. It basically said to anyone, if you mess with this thing, we're going to mess with you and you're going to be dead. If you mess with this tomb, well, then you might as well stay in there because that's where you're heading. We're going to kill you. That's what he's saying. Don't, don't mess with this tomb. So let's go back 
to that verse that we talked about earlier, the one about the not zombie apocalypse. Flip over with me, you guys, if you would, to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. I'm going to help us understand what I believe in Scripture we find as evidence of what Jesus was doing during these three days. And I need you to hear something, you guys. This is like really deep stuff that really is not of consequence in the sense that there's not any value to us here personally in our day-to-day lives as knowing what happened there. But there was definitely value, in my opinion, for the people that were waiting on Jesus and had died. So when we read this, I need you to understand that. But, but don't get all wrapped around the axle. If you're like, I don't get it or I don't agree, I'm okay with that. It doesn't really matter. That's what I'm getting at. Do you understand? So we're going to dig through some deep stuff here. We need to look at this story that Jesus told first. Some people believe this is just a parable, and I'll tell you why I don't. Most parables, if not all parables that Jesus gave, do we get like real specifics? No. It's like this woman had a mite and, or, you know, a mina and she did this with it. Or this man was a, you know, master and he had these many slaves and there's no names. There's nothing attached. We see this one here, the rich man and Lazarus, and we've got a name. We've got very specific locations. We've got all these specifics that makes me think that this is Jesus giving us a glimpse into something supernatural that we don't see. He's giving us a picture of something that really happened. And that's what I believe. And if you don't believe that, You're not alone. Some people don't. I think you're wrong, but that's okay. So start reading here with me. In chapter 16, verse 19, it says this. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. In other words, he ate really good food. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who had laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That is something that was well known. Remember that, Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you receive your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf or a great chasm fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, that I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also should come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent Think about that. What was his answer? Verse 31, it says, he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. You wonder why everybody doesn't come to Jesus running? If they're not willing to be persuaded, they're not going to be. 
But man, I'm so thankful we got a Holy Spirit and a God that's way more powerful than we are. So the best thing we could ever do is pray for our families, pray for our coworkers, pray for our friends that don't know Jesus yet. But the truth is, you guys, and this is the thing, if this is a true story, we see something here. I believe it is. I believe that this is a picture of something that actually happened, that we get some insight into things that we didn't previously know, maybe, or that we, didn't, we can't really understand entirely. Because you got to understand, there, there, in the Old Testament, prior to Christ, there was not this concept of heaven and hell, necessarily. There was a concept of paradise, which was known as Abraham's bosom. That sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? I remember being a kid and coming across that at 16, right after I got saved. I'm like, bosom, that's weird. <laughs> But the, the reality of the bosom is this, you guys. It's like what they're saying is Abraham. Like you're, you're brought to his chest. You're brought close to the father of the is people of Israel, right? You're brought close. You're in paradise. You're, you're safe. You're in a place of rest. That's the idea of Abraham's bosom or, or paradise. To know that you lived a life standing against God, not wanting anything to do with God because you were happy in your own riches and you were happy in your own life, and you didn't really care about the law of God, and you didn't care about any of these things. And so here they are, and now they're stuck there, but they can look right over there and be like, oh my gosh. Right? So we need to understand this, that there's these two places. And so you may wonder, like, what the heck does this have to do with this whole thing with the people coming out of the graves? Well, let's flip over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18 is where we're going to start. Just two verses here. Peter drops some knowledge on us. Tells us what's up with Jesus, like what was going on. We get a little deeper insight into what was happening during these three days that he was in the grave. And here's what we read in verse 18 of chapter 3. It says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Who's he talking about, you guys? Well, we read in verse 20 that it says, who were formerly disobedient, the ones of divine law and suffering, waiting in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. What is he getting at? He's getting at all these people that just didn't want anything to do with God. And he brings up this idea of Noah because the thing is, who was saved out of that entire flood? Eight people. Noah's family. Who could have been saved? Anybody that was willing to get on the ark. The ark could hold a lot more than just those eight people. They chose not to. And that's what's happening right now in this moment, you guys. From, from you know, eternity past, everyone that has died that didn't want to follow God, that didn't understand God, that didn't want to come to God the way he had dictated, which in the Old Testament was through sacrifice and through following the law and doing all these things. And in the New Testament, I'm so thankful because I get to eat pork and I get to do different things that they couldn't. But the reality is, the big thing is, is this. Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins, you guys. And that's it. That's the way. And it's the only way. And that's it. And if you choose not to do that, man, there's a place called hell and it's real. And that's where people are today and that's where they're going to stay, unfortunately. 
Because why do I say unfortunately? Because I am not God and I don't get his justice quite yet, but I know I will in heaven. And I also trust that he's just. Perfectly just. And that no one went there on their own. They chose to go there. Right? So here we see Peter that says, hey man, after what Christ was put to death, but before he was resurrected, he was made alive in the spirit. You guys, we need, to, we need to process some things. Where did he tell the thief on the cross that he was going to see him? In paradise, Abraham's bosom. I'll see you there today. So there's all these things, little threads that we can tie together that kind of take us back to this Matthew passage. That I believe when we're following the logic that we see here that Jesus went into Abraham's bosom and said, yo, you, you guys, you were here for God. Here's, here I am, the Messiah. I'm here, you guys. Like, let's go home. And they went to heaven. And some of them, for whatever reason that I don't understand, made this crazy pit stop and came back out of the grave. And the way it talks about that in the Greek is it's the same word that was used when Jesus raised Lazarus. It's the same word. They came back to life and lived another life and died again. Why? I don't know. If I were them, I would have been like, well, that's a bummer. (laughs) But they did it. That's what the Bible tells us. Do I get it all? No. But it makes a lot of sense to me that when Jesus went down to paradise, that he was like, come on, we're going home. But then you know what else Peter tells us is that he also went to the other side and he said, here's why you're here. You chose to not follow God. You chose to walk in disobedience. You chose to be against everything God was doing. That's why you're here and that's why you're staying here. My justice is complete and it is pure. And that's what he did. And that apparently took three days. Why is this important? Well, if you guys go to a Mormon church, you're going to hear that he actually came to America and spoke to people. That's nowhere in scripture. Nowhere in scripture. We need, do we need to know completely? No, it doesn't change the fact that Jesus died and rose again. Those are the two key points. But the reality is, is that we have some clues in here that give us information that we can use to kind of say to those people that are like, do you know where he was? He was actually here in America. No, he was not. Show me that in scripture. I can show you where he was. So at the end of the day, you guys, if this is too crazy and you're just like, man, I don't know about all that jazz. That's okay. Don't worry about it. If there's two big takeaways I would give from today, it's this. Meekness is always better than bravado. Walking in this world, knowing who your savior is, Jesus, and not letting the world around you affect you and also not being that big brazen guy or girl that's just like, yeah, you know, Jesus, I'm going to tattoo Holy Bible on your forehead to let you know. Don't be that person. Don't be that person right? Love people enough to to love them well, but walk in meekness. You've got the power of Christ in your life. You've got the power of Christ and you don't need to do anything with that except share it. (laughs) Share it. Share it in the way you live. Share it in the way you speak. And the final thing I want you to understand is this. Next week, you guys, we're going to look at the resurrection. 
We're going to look at the fact that Jesus rose again. And so if you hear nothing else today, I'm going to say it one more time. Jesus did not stay in the grave. Amen? Remember that. Now, if you're here today and you are not a believer, I need to explain something to you. You can come to church and you can be like, whoa, yeah, that was great. Pastor, you're amazing. You rock. No. None of that matters because none of that's going to get you to heaven. Only Jesus gets you to heaven. Repenting. That big, big word, repent, that people kind of sound like, oh, that's scary. It just means turn away from the garbage that you're doing. Who here is perfect? If anybody raises their hand, they're a liar. None of us are perfect. It's accepting the fact that we're not perfect and realizing that Jesus was and that he died and rose again for our sins. So if that's you here today, I just want to say something. Grab the person next to you and say, hey, man, I want to accept this guy, Jesus. I want to understand more about him. I want to know. And if, if you want to do that, grab somebody next to you. Come back and talk to me. I'll be in the back. I would love to chat with you about that. Second thing I want to say is if you're a Christian here today, can I just say one thing? I would encourage you to go back this week and look a little bit more at Joseph of Arimathea and a little bit more in Nicodemus. Because Americans, I got to say something. We are an anemic church. We're anemic. We're so cowardly in so many ways. And there's not anything to do about that except walk in the power of the Spirit and trust Him to move in your life. Do you understand? Be willing to say, Holy Spirit, what do you got for me today? What conversation might you have in my future? Lord, how do you want to move in my life? Lord, who do you want me to invite to church? God, how do you want me to live my life? What's going on with me? God, help me. I think if we really genuinely start doing that, I promise, I don't think that the church will stay anemic much longer. Let's pray. Thanks so much for listening to this message from Great Bay Calvary Church in Dover, New Hampshire. We're so glad you found us. If you want to learn more about our services or need prayer for something going on in your life, come connect with us at greatbaycalvary.com.